Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Competitive Enablement Show. I'm your host, Adam McQueen, and today I was joined by Mayor Palta, the Competitive Intelligence and Win-Loss Program Leader at Databricks. If you're listening to this episode and wondering, what am I going to learn from this? Well, Mayor and I get into three specific topics. The first of which is the biggest lessons that he's learned during his time at Oracle, Dell EMC, AWS, and now at Databricks. So that's 15 years of competitive experience at the biggest companies all packed into 20 minutes of lessons. The second thing we get into is we jump into Mayer's concept of using a data lake house to fuel your organization's competitive flywheel. Mayer actually wrote an article on LinkedIn about this. It's in the show notes below, a very interesting concept. And finally, if you're looking for something tactical, then at the end of this episode, Mayer shares three tips for anyone starting to build out a win-loss program based on what he's done so far at Databricks. This was an awesome conversation with one of the best and most experienced folks in the industry. You can find Mayer's course actually on starting competitive intelligence in the show notes below. And if you're listening to this episode, can you please subscribe and leave us a review? It actually means the world to us. Every subscriber matters as we're trying to build this thing up. We're on a mission to grow this industry, and I hope that these interviews we've been conducting provide competitive experts out there some lessons, tactics that you can use to level up your skill set, your career, and the profession as a whole. So with that all said, let's get into today's episode. All right, today I am joined by Mayor Palta, the competitive intelligence leader for data management and the win-loss program leader at Databricks. He's got a decade plus experience at AWS, Dell EMC, Oracle. So it's safe to say he knows a thing or two about Compete and I can't wait for you to share some of the lessons from your career so far. Mayor, thank you so much for joining me. Pleased to be here, Adam. And you, you, you're you the first person who said my name right. It's Mayor, like may your dreams come true. We're going to break the fourth wall immediately on this podcast episode. I had to come out front and ask it as a professional, you got to ask how to pronounce the first name because I butchered it, I think, before the recording. And now look at us. Now we look professional, but I've lifted the lid immediately. <laughs> All right. So what we want to get into in this episode is, as I mentioned there, You've got a lot of experience at a lot of companies that are, I mean, they're the who's who. And so we want to get into some of the lessons from your career. We also want to get into a little bit of this concept of a competitive flywheel that you wrote about on LinkedIn, a great article, highly recommend going to check it out. And then at the end of the podcast too, we're going to share a few tactical pieces of advice for anyone that's building a win-loss program from scratch, like you've done at Databricks. So let's start with the career side of this thing, because you've been at, again, some juggernauts right now in the tech space, and it'd be malpractice if I didn't dive into this. However, you mentioned that your foray or your less competitive lessons that you picked up started before you were even at these big tech companies. Can you share a little bit about that? Absolutely. And just an upfront reminder, the, the opinions I'm going to express in this podcast are my own, not my own employer. And my employer is also not a customer of Clue, just making sure that's crystal clear. Um, the, let, so let's talk about some of this. First, when we start talking about this lesson, this audience here, which is a lot of competitive intelligence professionals, uh, 
and practitioners and even uh, companies and professionals building competitive internet tools and the whole community around it. It is okay to be in competitive intelligence. That's the lesson number one I learned that don't feel like it's you're an island. Don't feel like you are all by yourself. There are hundreds, if not thousands of us globally. And it is some, it is something that brings together a unique blend of skills together, which is not normal in any straight profession. Mm -hmm. By that, I mean a very linear profession, either you're in sales or in marketing or in product or in engineering. Here, you're trying to blend a lot of things together. So it's normal. Now let's talk about those lessons. So before joining all the large tech companies, I tried to build a company of my own and I went against all conventional wisdom. Imagine if you are a 19 year old who's been told don't build a business, number one. Number two, if you want to build it, do not build something complex. Number three, don't take other people's money to build a business. So I made all these three mistakes. I tried to build a business in telecom, which was super complex and tried to build it uh, taking, VCs were not available at the time in that area, at the domain of optic fibers and so forth. They were not easily accessible. So I actually literally imagine you're sitting in, in front of a banker saying you want to take a bank loan to build a telecom company. So, and that's what actually I did. So I made all kinds of mistakes. The business did not succeed eventually because there was for all our competitive professionals, it's almost like war gaming exercise. Imagine there's a price war that erupts, all the te telecom giants in the world, it's a race to zero pricing. Like literally the thing is becoming free and you're trying to survive as the small player and the small fish in the pond with all these shocks all over. What would you do? Um, so I tried a few things, like I tried to drop the price of the business, um, but that was the worst mistake because in Vegas, if you're on the big league table, the big league survive. You are the first one to leave the table. And that's what ended up happening. I, I formed this habit of reflecting on these things and writing about these. So this journey is well captured. When I went to business school, I started writing about it and it's on LinkedIn too. So, At what point during that stage there, did you come to the realization, oh crap? The oh crap moment was when three of the largest companies in the world announced they're going to go after the same market in the same region with pretty much stuff being free. So, I mean, it's a good, it's a harsh, but good lesson in terms of competition from a really early age there, like you mentioned. From there, you come to Oracle, right? And you spent 10 plus years at Oracle, ultimately becoming the technical sales engineering leader. And first of all, I've had numerous folks on the podcast running Compete and their, their Compete professionals' best friends are sales engineers. I mean, a lot of sales engineers end up going into Compete like yourself. Even heard them referred to as competitive ninjas by our own Pat Wall. <laughs> um, what was your partnership like on the kind of competitive side of things uh, during your time there? Yeah, absolutely. So continuing that story, that early failure just made me realize the importance of paying attention to competition mm. kind of shapes your focus early on. If you, you know, knocked out at Oracle, the, the main piece at Oracle to, to realize this partnership is Oracle is well known for databases like existed. That's how they started. That's the largest market market leader. And that database software 
and very famous for Larry Ellison being the leader too, with all the amazing interests he has. So I, I, I had focused on in, within sales engineer, in engineering, I recognize this importance of finding like-minded people internally by like-minded people, people who had interest, who were starting to pay attention to competition. So I started organizing them initially as a one-on-one -on -one conversation, mind sharing, exchange of ideas, and eventually build a community around it, which we called a virtual team. So I built that, led that virtual team. It was completely from the ground up. And essentially we started paying attention and putting some structure around it. So this was a mechanism using which you could scale. By mechanism, I mean, with a clearly defined input and an output. It was not like a process in corporate America that you could follow, but rather this is how folks get engaged and this is the output we produce. Simple. That was essentially the, the role. You also asked about what was the partnership with Compete during that time. So do, do understand that this, the, I spent way too many years at Oracle, um, about 11. I stopped counting after like 10. Oracle went through this era of acquisitions. That's how they grew. This was the year 2007, 2008, when the downturn started. Companies became very economically available. And Oracle ended up buying 100 plus companies for 100 plus billion dollars. So the focus was on acquisition and consolidating those markets and, and buying your way into the C-suite office. Um, and very important, the three things if I have to summarize is competing is in Oracle's DNA. It trickles down from the very top, from Larry Ellison period. If everybody at Oracle took a strength finder test, you'll find competition among the top two things that show up. That's the DNA. During this time, this consolidation happened. And Though customers may have their own opinions about Oracle, you know, their sales experience would, could be a bit aggressive and the perceptions about it, customers still love the technology. And that is why the company is still thriving. So Oracle played to its strengths in technology throughout those years. So, but I would consider that, that Oracle is like the Harvard of sales. <laughs> you must work at Oracle if you want to learn about how to interact with customers, how to get technology adoption in the enterprise. What about that? I think the cool bit as well, the, the first piece you mentioned, the input-output building, sort of an organic, I guess, lack of a better word, like community. How did you go about finding those people, those like-minded people? Was it, was it something you actively pursued or looked out for, or did it just kind of you stumbled into this and it started to build up? Yeah, uh, that's very interesting. If you, if I look back, uh, I didn't even ever took the time to think about how it happened. But if you put some structured thinking around it, this is like an inform, informal communication network. It's almost like your own social network, so to say, where you are at the center and there are these other people you know, and they have further friends and the thing expands like a graph and that explodes or a mind map that explodes. So think about that from an informal communication network. But the first thing is you start seeking those ideas and that starts from your own curiosity, other people who want to learn about this common topic. And suddenly it, the whole thing takes shape and the community keeps spreading through word of mouth without much marketing spend or effort. Completely without, like this is without any rules. That's why mm. it grows, it's the wisdom of the crowds. In, that's super interesting. Uh, you, yeah, you, it's so on one side, you're talking about the wisdom of the crowd, finding like-minded people, very organic. But then on the other hand as well, I think you mentioned, and it feels like 
a, a lesson or a takeaway here is that competition and being competitive is like embedded in the DNA from a top-down perspective mm -hmm. too, you said from like a leadership standpoint, right? That is true. That's, that's the perfect, you know, uh, the perfect storm. What I've realized doing this at uh, three or four different places is the culture of the company matters a lot mm. and how they view competition. If you think about it, competition exists because they are addressing a need, a job that needs to be done. This is what Clay Christensen talks about, a job that needs to be done, that somebody will hire your product to get the job done. So competition exists because they're getting the job done. So it, it's okay to talk about those customer needs, whether it's being served by you or by someone else. So competition is, you always have to be respectful to your competition considering they are getting the job done that your customers want. I want to I wanna pull on a thread here as well, because what you mentioned there is the culture of Compete. And I've talked about this with a bunch of folks before, how you build this culture. And I think you've got top down, bottom up. But in, in, in what, what, that does, what does that culture look like in practice? Because I think culture can kind of become a buzzword a little bit, but I think it's also such a crucial part of how a company can compete successfully. So what does this culture of compete look like in practice at, at Oracle or any, any of the kind of your time at some of these organizations? Yeah, let me let me talk about the culture is something that's it's easy to experience. Like for example, if if you join Clue, whenever you join Clue, you start to look for certain social clues. Uh, no pun intended. You start <laughs> to look for those social clues. What does the CEO dress like? How does he present himself or herself in public? Uh, what kind of shoes do they do? Does he or she wear? Like what's their posture? Are they very formal? Are they very casual? Are they very open talking about certain things? Are they not so open talking about? So that kind of trickles down. People start behaving in a certain way. It's something you start doing when nobody's watching. The essence of how the company operates. And from that perspective, few leaders, few CEOs are very comfortable talking about competition. You'll hear them, if it's about public company, talk to Wall Street about competition. All they do speaking engagements with news media, and they will be very comfortable talking about competition. So that kind of defines if the whole organization is comfortable talking about it. But do keep in mind, this also comes from the leadership, the principles of the company itself. If you think about Amazon, the number one leadership principle is customer obsession. Now, if you read that customer obsession principle, it says, Leaders start with the customer and work backwards. They work vigorously to earn and keep customer trust. Although leaders pay attention to competitors, they choose to obsess over customers. Clearly laid out. So although leaders pay attention to competitors, they obsess over customers instead. So very clearly define how you should operate. So culture is very difficult to teach. It's something you can experience, shadow, learn, and acquire over time through lots mm. of trials and error. But this is the most important thing. It's not just about how good, some, how it's not being the smartest person in the room. It's about, have you seen the player before? And is, are you in the right environment with all the things empowering you to do the right thing? That's that's an interesting point, and I mean, we can we can jump a little bit into the AWS here. Um, but what what it sounds like is like you've kind of got these soft so things that are happening subconsciously to build a culture of compete based on your 
kind of what leadership's actions are, but then also a clearly laid out, for lack of a better word, like a mission statement. This is how we operate. So you've got explicit and sort of implicit things that are shaping that culture, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Yes. And and the mission statement and leadership principle, the two, there's some some differences here, but there's a minor difference. Mm-hmm. Every company has a mission statement. Some companies have leadership principles, it's whether to choose to apply them or not. Some hang on a wall. Some are executed day in, day out. Like in Amazon, one thing I experienced, I chose to go to Amazon and work at AWS because I went to my business school professor who actually wrote the Harvard Business School case study on AWS and Amazon um, and went to him saying, I want to learn about strong culture. Where should I go work? Uh, he says, well, it's too late for you to go join the Marines or the defenses where you do get to learn very extreme ownership and strong work ethic and strong culture. But there are companies in this world which, which demonstrate such quality like Amazon. And he, of course, was very biased because he understood Amazon really well. And that, that those leadership principles are things that you apply to different situations. To, to execute. I'll give you a simple example in a, in a short story. Back in the day when Amazon was just starting, during, if you remember the time, this was pre-era, pre-iPhone, that year iPods was the most popular Christmas gift item. That year, Amazon got lots of these orders of port, these uh, iPods and they were sold out. However, customers had high expectations that they wanted to be able to gift this to their loved ones. The person in charge of this category, the procurement person, literally went to each and every Apple store, bought those iPods at list price and fulfilled those orders. This person did not go up the chain seeking permission. This person did not care about the margins. This person cared about keeping the customer happy and meeting those expectations. So what we learned from that is what he, this person was applying were customer, was customer obsession as a leadership principle that you vigor, they work vigorously to earn and keep customer trust. So that's just, just an example in a short story here. I love that story. That's a great, it's just putting these things into practice. Again, it's not just a, a series of words, customer obsession. You could say competitor aware, customer obsessed, but if you're not, walk in the walk, then what does it mean? It, it doesn't, it doesn't get actually embedded into that culture. Um, on the AWS side, I don't want you to like reveal your secrets of like the tactics you use, but a lot of the things you were doing on the AWS side is kind of helping win key strategic deals. Is there advice you'd give to other people that are in that spot or they're trying to help win competitive sales deals or support the winning of these deals? Like, is there something that you took from your time there that you, if someone else was starting point A right now, you're like, this is one of the things that you need to know about. Yeah. So there is an NDA in place with AWS. So I cannot, of course, get into any of the details. Uh, I can talk from general experience and profession and express my own opinions here, which is, um, I think all it takes is hard work. That hard work is understanding your customer and doing that all the grunt work of going super deep and understanding what is the customer trying to accomplish and working backwards, which is a clearly defined mechanism at, at Amazon. So they do excel at that piece. 
It's public information is laid out at leadership principles, the mechanisms and so forth, but they do apply that religiously. And that takes very strong work ethic and execution of being so customer obsessed. I just shared one example. There's so many others. Companies tend to chase high profit and become short-term oriented. That short-term orientation becomes a challenge. You're trying to manage the expectations of Wall Street, the number you're going to produce this quarter. That drives different type of behavior. Uh, the good thing is Amazon said this, the leaders of Amazon said this ex expectation that we are long-term oriented, that it's going to take a very long time and we're going to do the right thing. That drives very different behaviors. Mm. That drives doing what's right. Um, there is one building in, uh, in Seattle, which is Amazon's headquarter. In the early days of AWS, when Amazon Web Services announced a key service, this developer online started giving feedback, using the service and giving feedback. This was a non-paying customer. That feedback was so valuable that shaped what AWS is today. That building that I'm talking about, its name is the, the, the handle, the tag of that developer. The building is named after the developer. So that just expresses how valuable your customer feedback is and how you're obsessive with customers. It's... It's such a good point in terms of, again, from a competitive standpoint, or when even when you're working at any of these organizations, it's easy to slip and as you're doing all of these different tasks and work to slip away from the customer. You get, if you don't think about it consciously, you can start to be separate, like the, the degrees of separation from the customer, it can grow quickly without you being consciously thinking about, oh, right. This is how we're going to succeed. This is how we're going to beat competitors is being obsessed with the customer. So points that you share, even though the stories are completely different, the common thread is always being this close to the customer at all moments. Easier said than done though. <laughs> well, I mean, can you explain? What, what, does, what do you mean by that? I'm saying I can talk about it, but you have to go actually do it. Yeah. Uh, that's the, that's, there's no silver bullet in compete or in business, uh, but executing that and is is not that easy so easier said than done all right last stop on mayor's world tour of compete lessons is actually this was prior to aws is you're at dell now i read a great uh linkedin article you actually referenced that you kind of do a reflection on your time at different companies and one thing i don't want to talk too much about dell even here is one thing i noticed is that you spent some time at a little known educational institution called harvard business school and one of the things that you developed a passion for specifically there is writing so my question is what's the biggest thing that you've learned about the craft of writing and how that parlays into competitive success your career and compete Right, right. I think writing overall brings clarity to your thoughts. I was actually going to a different school. I was going to Cornell. As he went to Harvard Business School, he says, why are you going here? You should go, uh, go here. Uh, and made me actually call the office of admissions and negotiate that at the very 11th hour and pull it off. So uh, it was all by accident, like, like anything else, never planned in life. Uh, you know, things happen. But the best thing I learned in this experience is the professors at Harvard Business School have taken this idea 
of teaching through case studies. These case studies are real life situations where you clearly lay out, or lay out a real world scenario where there's a protagonist, which could be you, who's in the middle of this situation where either the sky is falling or there are some external impacts, events happening with downstream impact. Imagine for CI practitioner, almost like wargaming scenarios. And you are in this hot, hot seat trying to take a decision. And so that way of learning through case studies started, triggered this curiosity of, let me experiment trying to write down my thoughts around and reflections around these. Some of these ended up becoming case studies by themselves. So at Dell EMC, as I came in, I started reading the context. There were some fundamental things happening. The day I joined, Dell and EMC merged. This was a massive $67 billion merger. Michael Dell took both the companies private, which, which means my world was upside down on day one. <laughs> um, but what learning from the business school and these professors was the fact that I started partnering with the leadership team at Dell EMC based on the sales engineering, system engineering, sales engineering function I was part of. And I started writing this case study about this merger, you know, like a tale of two distinct business models and cultures coming together. Dell is very different. EMC is very different. So that over a period of time, it just started, it, it started it started working well like the narrative how it came together the discussion that it encouraged and the clarity that it brought among the leaders just facilitated better decision making rather than pretty slides just trying to bring everybody up to speed i i love this i love this because i i've again i this is something that i'm passionate about talking to so many different folks in in compete whether they're a product marketing team of one, or there's someone like yourself here at an enterprise level is this, the superpower is in storytelling. It feels like making it memorable. You, you share case study, but it's making it feel more tangible because that's the thing that resonates. I mean, it's something that we talk about even on this podcast here, you and our channel, it's like more stories, the better. Those are the things that people remember and it allow it gives it so much traction. So in terms of like, yeah, that, that narrative of the merger, what was the kind of trickle down effect? Is that, does that set you up moving forward for, uh, in terms of from like a competitive lens? In short, yes. That merger, again, it starts from the culture. So I'm sort of becoming this, you know, evangelist for culture, but essentially that's how things get done. Dell operated at laser thin margins. The culture mm-hmm. was very different, financial discipline. EMC, large enterprise, big margins, big deals very different culture. So how do you reconcile the two? You know, we hear opposite attract, but in the corporate world, so much difference, distinctions can be challenging. Uh, so it requires certain changes to be made and whatnot, a lot of hit and trial and, uh, and quickly acting to that. The aftermath of that was, of course, if you look forward Dell, it's doing great. They reverse IPO VMware overall, Micro Dell is going strong and Dell overall as a company, Dell EMC and Dell Technology, they're thriving. Okay. I, um, this has been awesome. And I think listeners, I'm sure you've taken a million and one things away already, but I want to get into some tactical things too. We'll get to the flywheel later, but I really want to jump in on this because so many people I've spoken to are curious and need support in how to start a win-loss program. And you've done exactly that at Databricks so far. So can you give 
three pieces of advice on what someone who's starting from scratch should do to set up win-loss successfully? Uh, yeah, happy to. And of course, in short, it depends based on the size of the company. The, there's no one size fits all. The three things which may remain constant is first, we talked a lot about working backwards from your customers and the voice of the customer, staying close to customer and being the customer advocate. The second is being leaning towards data, like be data driven. In that win loss analysis, you may get anecdotes, you may get lots of opinions. You have to identify how to test the soundness of what is being shared with you. Literally put a soundness number to it from one to 10 and say, how sound is this? Can we take big decisions based on this data? Opinions, no matter how much interesting uh, are irrelevant, we wanna to lean towards facts. And those facts are actual things you could deliver, actionable. And lastly, have multiple perspectives, build a multi-dimensional view of why you win or why you lose. Um, not just CI's view, not just marketing's view or product's view, or I don't know, just a sales engineering's view. It has to be, it has to come together. It has to align to your customer's journey on how customers experience you. Remember, there's a job to be done. The job to be done is what your product is being hired to do. So how are you meeting that? And in that, how, what is the customer decision-making? Why are they choosing you? Why are they choosing someone else? It's all aligns with customer choice, decision-making in, in a way. So it all depends, no one size fits all, but those are kind of the three broad stroke themes. Work backwards from customer, be data-driven, and have a multi-dimensional view, more cross-functional view, not just one CI's view only. Yeah, you don't want to be just spewing out your CI view because it doesn't resonate. Again, I think it almost is to that, like, case study story, you got to tailor your message to the audience that you're sharing that with and having that perspective across the board is critical. In terms of, I think you mentioned there, like the data-driven side, I'm sure you hear from a lot of salespeople like this, this is the thing that matters most, or from this side, this side, you're going to hear a lot of things. So what I know you say, root your win-loss program in the data, but where does this qualitative feedback sit? Do you, is it, I hear you, I hear you. Do you break it into sort of how you then report this stuff out? I, I'm just really curious how you can balance all of these like kind of anecdotal sentiments and what's being shared. And then also the data side. That, that is the hardest part. And that's the most complex piece to, to solve for. Uh, and everybody I've seen tends to do differently. We met a lot of thought leaders at Intellicon a few weeks ago and got to meet with some of the thought leaders in the space who've been doing win-loss for like multiple decades. Um, and there are different ways to go about it. You could, like some approaches are very different. They are about handing this whole piece to an external entity. They mm -hmm. talk to your customers. They bring back that feedback. They tr transcribe those meetings, share those transcribed meetings with you and try, it's like looking for Hedel in an stack. Mm -hmm. uh, needle in a haystack situation. Um, the other perspective is you take ownership and start to do it the other end of the spectrum where you start talking to customers. And so customers is one view, but even customer views can be biased depending mm -hmm. on how long ago the decision was made, whether it was favorable or not, what was the experience with the company, with your brand, with your product, with your sales team. It could be a million different things. So how do you 
calibrate across all of these dimensions is key. It's good to have a multi-dimensional view, which is a mix, a hybrid approach of lots of these different things where you can balance out these things much better. So I'm leading in somewhere in the middle of these two, playing it safe, but bringing in more data points and then trying to say, what of this feedback goes to product? What of this feedback goes to top of the funnel marketing? What of this feedback increase our odds of winning with, with the field and sales? And what of this feedback is so critical that executive team needs to know about it? You have to apply a lot of filters and judgment and get a lot of feedback cross-functionally. What is relevant? You're looking for that relevance because easily these things become like data swamps where you don't know, you just keep collecting data and you don't know what you're looking for. And you don't know how to share it back out. And it, it's, I mean, this is why it's such an undertaking to lead a win-loss program and doing it successfully. I think you mentioned there's, there's so many touch points that could drive a decision. And then there's so many teams that need this information as well that you're supporting. And then you're talking to a customer and it could be, there, there's so many different things that come into play that shape how they make their decision. In terms of how your, what your approach is then, I think you mentioned there, there's one way have a big report, needle in a haystack, go. But what you, it sounds to me like what you've done is starting close to the customer, trying to listen to what maybe some of your cross-functional teams are sharing with you, tying it to data. How do you then share the insights that you're developing back out to these teams in a most effective way possible? Um, yeah, instead of here's a big report, dump that over to them. No one actually noticed it. No one cares about it. What, is, what has been your method to yeah, sharing these win-loss insights out so they actually are empowering the teams that need that? Yeah, I think there's no right or way, wrong way. Um, in your, your company, how big your CI team is, how it is being viewed, how it's being valued, all of these things could be different. So you have to do a hit and trial. And my approach could, be, could completely flop at a different place. So don't, don't take the approach if you know if it's going to flop. <laughs> The, the communication piece, you can, people these days tend to like bite-sized chunks, not this big report. So even I have been starting with big reports and, and seeing what kind of traction does that, that get. But I'm starting to realize it has to be sort of this drumbeat. And I'm stealing this word from Jason, uh, you know, at Clue, who was sharing a podcast yesterday about category creation which is essentially, this is part of an ongoing conversation. This is not a one-time report uh, where you look at the report and say, okay, so what, what do I need to do? Take action, mm -hmm. boom, done. This has to be this constant piece. So some of the things that can help increasing the frequency of how this is communicated. If you're doing it once a year, try to bring it quarterly. If you're doing quarterly, try to bring it monthly. If you're doing monthly, try to bring it weekly. But weekly means you'll have to do a lot more win-loss and whatnot. So depending on what kind of data sizes and mm -hmm. number of win-losses you're dealing with. And then finding multiple ways, preferences of your audience. Some people like reading a Word document. Some people like slides. Some people like watching a video. So what I tend to do is give them all, which is so much hard work, but it is in the initial phases of getting that feedback of what is gaining traction, what is not. So at least you know what to not do anymore. It's really tailoring it to your audience because they're the people that need it most, really, right? Mm -hmm. And so they need to be able to consume the message. So I love, I love that you're picking between the medium and then also sort of the message. I mean, what product needs to know is different to what, not necessarily different, but there's 
I mean, it is in some ways different to like what marketing needs to know from this win-loss point. And it, from what I'm hearing from you, and this is something that we, we talk about a lot in terms of your competitive program, is it like the win-loss program side of is, is, is a living, breathing thing. Like it's constantly changing, it sounds like, from your end. Yep. It's a, it's a constant drumbeat and constant living being that's growing, that's evolving, that's taking feedback, that's failing, learning from those mistakes. And yeah, honestly, lots of mistakes and, <laughs> and some uh, lots of rookie mistakes too. Mayor, yeah. you got to give us one, one screw up here. Give us, give us the yeah. worst thing you've done on the win-loss side of things here. I, I, I'll give you the worst mistake. I did share a report, but it was viewer view rights only. And somebody from the executive team with carrying a C-level title tried to comment on that and could not comment. That was a perfect opp- missed opportunity to get feedback. I mean, the fact that you think of it in that way too is you need feedback because I think multidimensional view, although you're the subject matter expert, you're leading this win-loss program, doesn't mean you know everything. You want the feedback, especially from the C-level. If they're taking the time to give feedback on this, like that is worth its weight in gold. Yes. So and I'm sorry if you making... up. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> okay. Last thing I want to touch on here. This has been awesome. And we're going to have to have you back on. I want to get into this, the, the concept of this competitive flywheel that you've, you've established over at Databricks and you wrote a whole article. So we'll link to that as well in the podcast, but can you just share like a high level, what this concept is for, for folks in compete right now? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'll tell you the origins of how this started and where it is, what it is, but it's very simple concepts. So how it started is I told you, I got this bad habit of writing and, and I tried to express those ideas, try to even create a Udemy course uh, on art and science of competitive intelligence. So far there's one student and that student is actually a professor in Europe who's teaching CI, somebody who has research papers who gave me a two out of five uh, <laughs> feedback. And, but you know what, being customer obsessed, being customer obsessed, that first student, uh, now that student is engaged in helping me build that course itself based on that feedback. So next time somebody gives, uh, hopefully it'll be a four out of five, not a two <laughs> out of five. Yeah, so that became a habit. I started writing, assembling all of his, these things in the form of a book. So that book, um, I'm, I'm titling it, How to Compete and Win the Software. By software means software without the letter E. And, and hint there, don't get outcompeted. Um, don't get eaten alive. So this created this concept of flywheel. What flywheel really is, if you look at, for example, Amazon's business, um, the idea of a flywheel is it takes a lot of effort to, to start a flywheel, like get things in motion. But once it gets spinning, it continues to quickly gain momentum and spin faster and faster. This this is similar to a snowball effect, you know, where a snowball gets pushed down a hill, it progressively gets bigger and bigger and faster and until it, it's nearly impossible to stop it before it reaches the bottom of the hill. So this, this difference, uh, the difference is that um, the flywheel never has to stop. This is this constant drumbeat. This is this constant flywheel. Applying this concept to competitive intelligence, think about it for a second. The more competitive intelligence uh, insights you have, the better one can deliver on product services. 
the better one can offer services to or products to a customer, their experiences become better. The more customers are attracted, the more customers one has, the more competitive insights you get. So this flywheel starts taking effect. This type of competitive intelligence flywheel makes a company more attractive to customers and strengthens your position, ability to compete effectively as it gains this momentum. Um, yeah. What what are the foundation? What's what are the foundations you need in place for that flywheel to to operate? Because I mean, that sounds great to me. But if you don't have the right processes in place, it's gonna be it's yes. gonna be difficult, right? Yes. So this customer feedback, cross functional collaboration, some of these building blocks. But most importantly, you need the underlying platform, the foundation too, because you're gonna get a lot of that data. And what happens is. The, the company I work for, Databricks, created this new category called a lake house. A lot of this data sits, comes in from in data lakes, like famous data lakes, AWS S3, very popular. People start storing a lot of information, information like Twitter feeds and news and website changes and media, what your competitor are now. You start to collect all of this in one place. But that it's very difficult to govern that data lake. But then there are other systems internally, like Salesforce, where you're getting your win-loss data, sort of, and why you're winning, you're getting feedback, technical blockers, and all. That's a data warehouse. So you have a data lake, which has become a data data swamp. You have data warehouse, but it cannot. It's very expensive to store everything in a data warehouse. It can't store news feeds and unstructured and semi-structured content. So Databricks created this converged category, a new category called the lake house where there's data warehouse sitting on top of a data lake, which means you could do both. And if you could do both, this is a classic CI challenge of dealing with both these data sets together. Mm -hmm. So the article I wrote is talking about how do you build a comparative intelligence flywheel using data and AI, which is essentially the, this new category or data bricks platform. The, the, the imagery as well you use in the article and how you articulate the message is it's it's very very good and for anyone that is listening that wants to learn more you've you've got to check that article out mayor it's top of the hour i i can't take any more of your time as much as i would like to um this was awesome and i thank you so much for joining and sharing a little bit of your wisdoms and one screw up as well awesome thank you so much adam thank you for having me and thank you everyone for listening take care and where can Bye. people reach you as well before we hop off here uh, on my LinkedIn. LinkedIn is uh, would be the best. Yep. So awesome. Follow follow Meyer, and we'll catch everyone next week. <laughs> <laughs>